Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the only three films about Jesus worth seeing. in time for Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of Holy Week on the Christian calendar, with several important days, including Good Friday and ending with Easter Sunday, seems like a very good time to talk about the biopics of Jesus Christ. The worst have come from Hollywood, no surprise there. One of the best was made by a Marxist homosexual whom the Vatican has denounced multiple times. We've talked about strange bedfellows on this program before. I'll offer this thought. Strange bedfellows, indeed. I want to cover the three best. They could not be more different, coming from different languages, made in different countries, even using different types of film. But first, some words of introduction. Without any special effects from Hollywood whatsoever, the Gospels, which are the biblical accounts of Jesus Christ, are both amazing and powerful. In fact, Rather than adding any spectacle to the epic scale of his life story, nearly all movies made about Jesus either truncate or sanitize in their storytelling. So, what's out there? If I talk about this as being an entire genre of film, what's in the genre? Well, in the Hollywood of the 1960s, which is where I would have first noticed these films, The Road to Calvary looked more like a parade than an execution. Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew, made in Italy in 1964, used neorealism to create a distant, almost newsreel kind of an effect. The most famous 1970s film about Jesus was a musical featuring Judas leading a beyond-the-grave song and dance number. The other extreme, of course, are the drawn-out miniseries approach. These films take what could be told in two hours, three hours at the most, and drag them out into a six or seven hour slog that absolutely has no sense whatsoever of urgency or excitement. More recently, The Miracle Maker, made in 2000, that's a G-rated claymation film. It has been largely ignored as kid stuff. Evidence of that is that the trial and crucifixion of Christ were appropriately edited for the targeted age group. About four years later, though, Mel Gibson would make The Passion of the Christ, which is anything but appropriately edited for the age group and shows the trial and crucifixion in great detail. I want to begin there. Of the three biopics of Jesus that are worth watching, number three, and I'm going in reverse order, is Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Somewhere in the midst of all these other films made about Jesus, many of which are incredibly poor and most of which are lifeless, Mel Gibson made a decision. Using a model established by movies like The Passion of Joan of Arc, 1928, Gibson decided to strip all the pretense off the Hollywood crucifixions of the past. His script is simple. Arrest, trial, execution. The difference is the brutal realism. Echoing what many of us have said for decades, that you cannot film the true story without a hard R rating and a ton of controversy, Gibson used his own money to finance, and I would say to shield his production 
for the Passion of the Christ. Starting in Gethsemane, the Passion only shows snippets of other key events in the Gospels. As memories, we see a few moments of the Last Supper, the Sermon on the Mount, etc. Instead, we are thrust headfirst into Jesus' darkest hours. The result is somber rather than uplifting. Like other films about Jesus, the Passion feels incomplete. Still, it is among the most valuable in the genre. Now, I'll grant that it's a pretty poor genre. But the Passion of the Christ brings something that the others simply don't have. If I were to pick a moment in all of Holy Week where this is the perfect film, it would probably be Good Friday. Why do I not rank this film higher than number three? After all, it's been heralded as the biggest money-making independent film of all time. Um, It's viewed by some to be the best of its sort. Well, here's a thought. The decision to focus on grim and harsh realities costs Gibson's film by requiring the viewer to bring theological knowledge to the story rather than the other way around. The Passion is not a crash course in Christianity. No, it never intended to be. Gibson shot the movie in Latin and Aramaic, and he originally planned no subtitles whatsoever. For the uninformed, this is a movie that's going to raise questions, not answer questions. Okay, so why do I regard it highly enough to make it number three at all? Mainly when I compare the mistakes of films in the past, it elevates the status of this one. Here's a couple of examples. The Greatest Story Ever Told from mid-60s. It has a distracting reliance on celebrity star power. As if the filmmakers didn't grasp that Jesus is the only star this story would have needed. Not just the major roles. Even minor, single-line and non-speaking parts were populated not just with a cast of thousands, but with a cast of hundreds, if not thousands, of recognizable faces. For example, a one-line part in the story is a Roman guard at the scene of the crucifixion who, after witnessing Jesus' last moments, says, Surely this man was the Son of God. In the greatest story ever told, that role has been cast by John Wayne. It's almost as bad as, Surely, Pilgrim. This man was the son of God, I reckon. Okay, it's not quite that bad. But the fact that it is John Wayne speaking the lines is unmistakable. And a huge mistake at the same time. The greatest story ever told is also guilty of horrifically bad storytelling. Perhaps some would object to me referring to the gospel accounts as history. But there could be no question that a biopic of Jesus is an adapted screenplay. And yet, the screenplay for The Greatest Story Ever Told reads like no one actually looked at the source material. Compare that to The Gospel According to St. Matthew. This film corrects the Hollywood approach by relying on non-actors. The director's motivation in this case had nothing to do with his faith. The Gospel According to St. Matthew's marketing emphasized Pasolini's Marxism and the Marxism within his cast and crew over any influence of God in the story itself. Something about the Passion of the Christ being a story made by Christians for Christians seems quite different and distinct from the sheer commerce of the greatest story ever told or the you know, kind of anti-Christian approach to the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Finally, I'll also cite Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, an entertaining musical 
it leaves out one little small detail in Jesus's life story. It's that whole lives again part, the resurrection. It's alarming that this intentional oversight didn't strike a sour chord with more Christian viewers than it did. It's easy to find people who have fond memories and had a good experience watching Jesus Christ Superstar. It's fine by me as well, up until the very end. For modern audiences, the most alarming thing about Carl Dreyer's silent film, The Passion of Joan of the Ark, is the use of close-up. Well, The Passion of the Christ feels just as tight, even with fewer close-up shots. Many Christians from various denominations have already mentioned the desire to push the movie away. Non-Christian groups have been far more vocal. Allegations range from the far-too-expected backlash against a perceived evangelism in the, movies, in the movie theater to outright accusations of anti-Semitism. No response is as cutting as the one I saw in a New Republic article at the time the movie came out, which referred to The Passion of the Christ as a Christian snuff film. Before I address Gibson's critics, allow me to deal with my own biases. First, I am one of the Christians, and back then I was young too, so I was a young film-loving Christian, seeking an honest telling of the Gospels. I knew the movie would inevitably be rated R, and I called for it. Now that Gibson has you know, provided the world the film that I'd wanted, my feelings are mixed. The Passion is an important film. But that sounds dismissive in significant ways. Maybe it is nothing more than just an important film. Second, I am aggressively ecumenical. When it comes to open and charitable dialogue with Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others, including other Christian points of view, and frankly, including the non-religious as well, I am more than just willing. Furthermore, I believe this eagerness of mine is Christ-driven. I am sympathetic with the struggles of minorities, and I believe that so-called true Christianity has become one of those minorities in the past, surely will be in the future according to biblical prophecy, and may already be within the realm of truth. It is not difficult for you to catch me on a day when I feel like where I stand versus what I'm hearing on Christian television and other sources makes me feel like, again, I feel true Christianity is a minority, and true Christianity doesn't tend to have its own TV program. Regarding Christian qualms and R ratings, which really cuts to the heart of what The Passion of the Christ is all about, let me make a few points. In 1988, Martin Scorsese released The Last Temptation of Christ with an R rating. In 1994, Oliver Stone released Natural Born Killers, and R may not have been a sufficiently strong rating. I don't know, I haven't seen it yet. In 1995, Gibson won many awards and no shortage of acclaim for Braveheart, also rated R, primarily for violence. Outspoken Christian criticism of Last Temptation of Christ had little to do with action and much more to do with the script itself. Somehow in the midst of that controversy, Scorsese, the director, was vilified for filming Nikos Kazantzakis' book, it's as if Kazantzakis was not responsible for his own ideas, only Scorsese. That was a mistake. It was a mistake for the same reason that Gibson cannot be blamed for the ideas and quotations in his film that are clearly recorded in the New Testament. As far as violence goes, less than a year after many Christians denounced natural-born killers on specific grounds of violence, 
Many cheered Braveheart, despite that film's content. The hypocrisy was clear. The problem in Stone's movie wasn't really the violence after all, was it? Along those same lines, the violence and the passion may keep people, particularly children, away from Gibson's movie. That's fine. If you liked the message in Braveheart, though, the message in the passion is biblical in its proportion. Gibson's gospel story sticks to the written record far better than Braveheart as well. Before I move on to my number two film on this list, which is also a controversial movie, I want to take one more look at the controversy itself over The Passion of the Christ. First, from non-Christian groups. I have been an outspoken critic of Christian hypocrisy, even on this show, and I'm not done yet. In America, one group should not be permitted to censor art for all others in a way that filters through their particular faith. Because I feel that way, I was happy to permit a movie in my neighborhood featuring a Greek author's fictional what-if about Christology in The Last Temptation of Christ. Evangelical author Josh McDowell is right when he says that there is something about Jesus that frightens our secular world. With the average person walking down the street, you are likely to succeed in having a cup of coffee over a conversation about politics, God, witches and wizards, even the prophet Muhammad. Good luck if you want to discuss Jesus Christ. Some Christians react to this angrily, politically. They want equal time and fair use, and they make wild claims about being persecuted. I'm afraid we need a better understanding of what the word persecution means. I find this situation strangely satisfying. Maybe it means that my theology is still real in a world that hardly believes anything is true. Buddha is just a concept to most people in America, if that. Jesus, on the other hand, seems threatening to many non-Christians. Maybe they sense that talking about Jesus might just change their lives in a radical way. Maybe, and I'm putting that maybe in quotation marks, they're correct. Now, does the passion of the Christ deserve this fear, though? That's really the question. Not really, I'd say. Gibson's movie doesn't tell enough of the story of Jesus to be compared to that coffeehouse conversation with one person sharing his faith. Also, contrary to popular opinion, I don't believe that the movie was directed toward non-Christians as an audience at all. The Passion was made by Christians for Christians. Surely others are welcome. Make no mistake, though, Gibson's movie is not attempting to answer a lot of questions. Would the same non-believers who feel threatened by the Passion of the Christ lose any sleep over a Buddhist film company making a movie targeting a Buddhist audience about the life of Siddhartha? I believe Americans take too much pride in our multiculturalism to let that bother us. To restate one of my biases, hypocrisy is unacceptable. I'm likely to attend that small art house foreign language film about Buddhism, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's also nothing wrong with a distributor releasing a movie with a similarly narrow focus on one particular religion that happens to have an audience of more than 100 million people eager to see their story. I'm not going to touch on allegations of anti-Semitism today. Clearly, Mel Gibson has issues. Has he become bitter because of the backlash against the passion of the Christ? Or was he always bigoted? 
We cannot truly know the answer to that question. I will say this. Most examples cited as evidence of anti-Semitism in Gibson's movie were directed at direct quotes from Matthew's Gospel. How odd. Matthew was a Jew writing a book about a Jew named Jesus for an audience that Matthew assumed would be Jewish. Here's my opinion, and it comes in two parts, and I have no trouble harmonizing these two ideas. First, the Gospels present the story of Jesus Christ as witnessed by his followers, worthy of being told as a biography from their perspective. That's true even if you think that all of it is fiction. The Gospels are telling a story from the perspective of Jesus' followers. Second, anti-Semitism is an evil betrayal of everything Jesus taught. Most Christians accept both of these truths as obvious. I would guess that a large majority of non-Christians also have little trouble following the logic. In fact, the more you know about Jesus Christ, the more obvious it becomes. Others, on the other hand, have suggested, in the wake of the backlash over the Passion of the Christ, that truth must always be a lowercase noun. What matters is peace, harmony, mutual acceptance. If the only way to achieve that is to sacrifice a few big truths, then standards be damned. I'll grant that harmony is an important part of all human interaction. Even further, Christians are commanded to display the grace of God even in times of conflict. However, peace can never be attained without truth. When truth is at stake, we have three choices on dealing with these issues that divide us. One, we can bridge the gaps between ourselves by embracing truth. Two, we can ignore one another completely by not acknowledging truths that we each have to offer each other. Three, and the one thing we cannot do ever is lie or deny truth altogether as a means of gaining any sort of tenuous peace. Give me option number one. That will always be my first choice. Maybe the biggest irony in Matthew's words, being so controversial in Mel Gibson's film, in Latin in Mel Gibson's film, is how Pier Paolo Pasolini and his movie relied on that gospel account specifically. My number two film in the biopics of Jesus worth seeing is The Gospel According to St. Matthew from 1964. Let me relate first the problems with the film The Gospel According to St. Matthew. It was shot in black and white, in Italian, in a neorealist style, with a cast full of non-actors. Now, let me tell you some of the great things about The Gospel According to St. Matthew. It was shot in black and white, in Italian, in a neorealist style, using a cast of non-actors. This is one of those rare films where the things that one viewer will find to be an incredible problem, another viewer will find to be an incredible benefit. There are rich rewards in the do-it-yourself, amateur, almost spontaneous approach of Pasolini. Not the least of which was Pasolini's decision right up front to take one of the Gospels, Matthew's in this case, and say, that's our screenplay, let's go film it. Compare this to some of the complaints that I've raised about movies like King of Kings and The Greatest Story Ever Told, where they don't seem to have a lot of fidelity to the gospel accounts at all. In the case of the gospel according to St. Matthew, this isn't an issue. It's a crucial step and a wise decision by Pasolini. See, Pasolini was a Marxist and an atheist. 
he didn't believe for one minute any of the words that he was filming. He brought in actors and asked them to do exactly what their title says. Act. Play the part. It wasn't necessary for him that he have a cast full of believers. The power in this for me, as a Christian, is that it represents what the words of the Gospels can do, even in the hands of people who are completely dispassionate about the film they're making and the words they're speaking. Matthew's Gospel is also a pretty good Gospel to go with in terms of it being comprehensive. The Passion of the Christ is a little bit more than two hours long. With an extra 12 minutes, though, Pasolini manages to tell the entire story. I mentioned early on that the Gospel according to St. Matthew was filmed by a director who has been denounced by the Vatican several times. Pasolini is actually one of two directors who I believe are unique in having the distinction of having their movies on both the Catholics denounced films list, movies no Catholic should see, and also the Vatican's list of movies that every Catholic should see. The other director is Luis Benuel. His film, Nazarene, is more like a version of the Diary of a Country Priest. It's not a biopic of Jesus Christ. I won't go into detail today on the films that has gotten Pasolini in so much trouble, but I will say this. He has made movies that are so controversial and so rejected by the church overall that a documentary made in the mid-1970s called Whoever Says the Truth Shall Die was essentially a film about his brutal murder and assassination. And that documentary suggests that conservative political leaders, perhaps even religious leaders, may have been involved in conspiring to kill this director and stage it as an act of street violence because the movies that he had made that were controversial apparently left a much bigger negative impression than some of his early works did on the positive side. I mentioned Pasolini as a neorealist. He is not esteemed in that genre the same way that perhaps Vittorio De Sica and Roberto Rossellini are. But I think for his earliest movies, movies like Akatone and this one, he deserves all the acclaim that has been given to those men as well. In the case of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, he has not just filmed amateur actors as part of the street people, start of the broader story, filling in the cast with authentic um, characters, maybe people portraying themselves even. In this case, he brought non-actors into the story and, and has given them pivotal roles. It's hard to film accurately a biopic of Jesus without having a lot of central figures. Peter, James, John... Mary, Caiaphas, it is essentially uh, an all-star cast from just the character perspective. And what Pasolini did that I think was brilliant and extremely risky was putting no stars whatsoever in the film. I'm noticing something here. I had a lot more to say about the third best biopic of Jesus than I do about the second. And as I'm looking forward to introducing, without a doubt, the best biopic of Jesus ever filmed... I may even have less to say about that. Something a little bit ironic. I think that perhaps the uh, number three and number two films on my list stand out a little more for being controversial. And when I get here to number one in just a moment, I won't have as many things to say about the backlash against the film or you know, any odd stories about its making. This is a, a labor of love made across 
four countries during a four or five year span that has almost not been shown. The number one film about Jesus is The Miracle Maker. It's been described as 3D animation, also as spectacular clay animation, or what we used to call claymation, using some of the best vocal talents out there today. I would tell you that if you listen closely to the voice work in the film, you'll hear Ralph Fiennes, Julie Christie, William Hurt, Alfred Molina, Miranda Richardson, Ian Holm, David Thewlis, and more. But I suspect you might not. These are not stars making a vocal appearance in an animated children's film. These are actors committing their vocal work to character and storytelling, where really wouldn't surprise me if you listened to the acting closely and were unable to consistently find who was who through the performances. The other thing that I would alert you about is that if the image of clay animation calls to mind Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Little Drummer Boy, well, if you're like me, that may actually dredge up some fun childhood memories. The quality here is generations apart. The movie was filmed essentially in Wales, Israel, Russia, and the quality of the characterization that they've been able to achieve with the very human-looking clay figures is astounding. We know that the technology has moved leaps and bounds. We've seen some incredibly wonderful things done um, in films like the uh, Wallace and Gromit movies. But unlike those films where the goal is to present cartoon characters, these characters are asked to look very, very real. So you're not going to see a more unique picture, because I don't believe that there's another animated film about the life of Christ that is worthy of an adult audience. And... Unlike the other two movies on my list, and the thing that really distinguishes this one as number one, is unlike Mel Gibson's movie where the life of Jesus is barely covered, it's a passion play, it focuses only on just a few hours, or the Gospel according to St. Matthew, where the director has chosen to focus on one particular gospel, and even in that one particular gospel, he's looking to present Jesus as a revolutionary, out to change the world, with a real driving vision very much somebody who a Marxist could get behind as an inspirational leader. The Miracle Maker tells a story that brings in elements of all the gospel accounts and really weaves together something that can be presented as an accurate portrayal of the life of Christ with nothing added that isn't in the gospels themselves, a key mistake from the greatest story ever told, and nothing deleted that is important to an accurate telling of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, a mistake that Andrew Lloyd Webber made, in my opinion. The other thing that I think is brilliant about this movie, instead of being a three or four or five hour mini-series type depiction where the you know music swells and the camera focuses on a close-up and every little detail is played up with an incredible amount of cheesy pathos, this is a pretty straightforward, simple cutting of the film. The edit itself is just a shade more than 90 minutes long. That includes the credits. So you're dealing with a film that really has a pretty tight runtime, and yet amazingly pulls all the significant moments recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John into a single linear story. This isn't the old-fashioned filming of Jesus begins with birth, ends with resurrection. A screenplay has been written here that puts real characters and a genuine point of view in the storytelling role 
so that the point of view doesn't come from a godlike external narrator or any sort of a third-person approach. Actual people who figure into the gospel accounts bring you into the story, and you see the story all the way through with their point of view as an anchor whenever a flashback is shown or whenever an aside is given to introduce new characters. I can't recommend enough The Miracle Maker. And if you chose during this holy time of year for Christians to watch just one movie, The Miracle Maker is that film. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. You may have noticed last week that the different drummer didn't have any real connection to the theme of the inappropriate conversation. Sometimes that's going to be the case. This time, however, obviously it's not. The first time I have an opportunity to cite Jesus of Nazareth as a different drummer, I'm going to do it. I could simply explain that away by saying, hey, happy Easter, everyone. But for me, it's more personal and it's more real than that. So let me take a moment during the different drummer segment here to tell you a little bit about who Jesus Christ is and why he's a different drummer. First, it's not hard to find people who will recommend Jesus Christ, the man. Gandhi has a famous quote where he essentially says, I like your Christ. It's Christians that I have an issue with. Even those who do not acknowledge that Jesus is God will tend to acknowledge that he's a very wise teacher or a prophet, or at the very least, a distinctive man with a lot of wisdom to communicate. The Gospels are the first four books in the New Testament. And those books present first-hand eyewitness accounts of disciples' perspectives on the life of Christ. Let me introduce you to the different drummer, simply by talking a little bit about what makes the four Gospels unique. Matthew's Gospel is a Jewish account, written in the name of one of the disciples, a Jewish former tax collector, called into Christ's fold pretty late in his process of selecting disciples. And Matthew presents his gospel for what he perceives to be a Jewish audience. Every opportunity Matthew has to cite fulfilled prophecy, Matthew does. And Matthew comes into his gospel with an assumption that a lot of people have a lot of knowledge already about what the prophets had to say, particularly prophets like Isaiah and Micah. Mark is believed to be telling Peter's story in his gospel, and Mark presents the shortest tightest, and perhaps most revolutionary of the gospel accounts. Mark focuses on action, perhaps more than the other writers, and Mark is often viewed as somebody who has a revolutionary point of view. He's showing Jesus upsetting the conventional wisdom, standing up to the authorities like the high priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. Luke, bringing what may be viewed as perhaps the account from Jesus's family, Seeming to be informed perhaps more by Mary than the other writers, Luke comes in as an outsider, not one of Jesus' disciples, and yet tries to relate also 
what reads like an eyewitness account, with a message that he seems to be trying to give to a much broader world audience. Unlike Matthew, Luke does not assume a lot of knowledge of Jewish history and Jewish prophecy. He seems instead to be telling as complete a story as he can from start to finish for people who might not know anything about it. And I've always assumed that Luke, also the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, was also writing this gospel to be given to those far-off places that are recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, So as the Apostles were traveling throughout Asia Minor, Southern Europe, the gospel account that Luke presents might have been something that was either written at the same time that those journeys were being made, or written specifically to be taken on those journeys to convey these strange concepts to people who didn't really understand Judaism at all. John's gospel is widely acknowledged as being the latest of the four in terms of its date of writing. And John takes a very different approach. Instead of trying to tell what might be a history, John tells a much more personal account. There have been some who bristle at some of the ways that John speaks and addresses when Mark describes conflicts with Pharisees and Sadducees in his text, and Jesus is standing up to Jewish authorities, it's related in a very third-person kind of a way. It's a he said, then they said, then he said kind of situation. John is not above referring to them. For John, these moments of conflict that Jesus had with, with uh, certain key religious figures of his day Um, John takes very personally, and John even lashes out at times against those who confronted Jesus and plotted his murder and ultimately delivered on that plot. So John has kind of got a personal, my friend Jesus kind of a story to tell. It's there that I'd like to pick this up, because for me, the most important thing about Jesus is the my friend aspect of it. There are going to be different drummers that I talk about in the course of this program that I do know personally. It may be a while before I get to one that I've actually met face-to-face. I certainly have plans in the future where I've put kind of pen to paper and said, hey, here's where I want to talk about one of the friends that I've met on the Internet who's had a huge influence on my life. And part of the reason I, I kind of bring that up, kind of foreshadow that a little bit, is that I firmly believe that you can have a close personal relationship with somebody that you have never seen face to face in the flesh. When the time comes, I'm going to refer to that person as a contemporaneous friend, bringing in the concept contemporaneous to say, hey, it's now. It may not be in the same place, but it's certainly in the same time. Of course, with Jesus Christ, it's a much more complicated idea, isn't it? Because in many ways, my faith makes it clear to me that my relationship with Jesus is now. But it's not now in the same time-space continuum that I might have with somebody that I know at work or you know, a neighbor or somebody that I go to church with. It's a completely different thing. Different Drummer strikes me as not being the time or place for me to talk about my own personal conversion experience. It doesn't seem to me to be the right place to talk about anything too deeply metaphysical. But I will say this, the people who suggest that Jesus is a great teacher, a wise man, a uh, genuine prophet, acknowledge that he has changed the world we're in. It is very hard to find another single person who has had the kind of influence on world events. And I'm willing to describe that influence as both positive and negative. In the hands of good, faithful people who listen 
not just to Jesus, but also the Holy Spirit, a concept that I'll have to say for another time. You don't find very many negative, destructive, violent things happening. But it is the same relationship with Jesus. It is the same Jesus who have inspired things like Spanish Inquisitions and witch trials. I'm going to grant that fully and freely. You've got to make a distinction between the inspiration of an honest person and what dishonest people do with that inspiration. For me, I can't conceive of why somebody would turn to violent and antisocial behavior in the name of Christ, but I'm, I'm not naive. I'm very willing to acknowledge that it's there. Reading the gospel accounts, or even watching a film like The Miracle Maker, gives you a pretty good idea of the character of Christ. If you go to those particular texts looking for proofs and disproofs, that's all you're going to find. If you go to those particular texts looking for reasons to believe or reasons to disbelieve, that's all you'll find. I think instead, my experience has been that the character of God is represented in these documents. And I am willing to go there looking for nothing more than the answer to questions like, who is this person? Who is this person who on the one hand, some people believe was fully and completely fictional. And on the other hand, we have to acknowledge has absolutely changed the world, whether fictional or not. Again, a different drummer segment is not really the time where I intend to go into any detail about reasons why I believe that the non-scriptural accounts of people like Josephus and Tacitus are credible. It's enough for me to say that if I only accomplished a fraction of the love that Jesus accomplished in his time on this planet, if I am only able to reach out to others with the same genuine loving heart that he did, a fraction of the amount of times that I feel called to do so, then the world itself might actually be a better place because I've embraced what this man has done and taken it into my heart. One of the things that is easy to object about in the organized church is how many rules, how many hoops, how many barricades are put up between Jesus himself and the believer. For me, this really isn't all that complicated. Jesus was asked once, what you had to do to be part of his kingdom. And his answer was very simple. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, love God and love others. I don't have room in my worldview for that plus anything else. I don't have a Jesus plus theology. And I frankly reject all those who do have a Jesus plus theology. You're going to find situations when people share their faith in Christ with you their faith in Christ also has a whole lot of Ten Commandments to it, Twelve Commandments, Fourteen Commandments. You may find that for all the commandments that you get presented, there's even one rule that supersedes all those others that isn't even in the Ten Commandments to begin with. Jesus really kept it very, very simple. He wanted to keep the focus on loving God and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. These are not concepts which were in and of themselves groundbreaking, but the gospel accounts tell a story of somebody who was really, truly willing to lay down his life for those concepts, who was willing to put it all on the line for his friends, and who did so with a genuinely eternal perspective. For that, I am grateful. 
and for that I am happy to cite Jesus Christ as the first different drummer who's also a friend of mine. Just a quick closing note here. Next week is Easter. I'm also going to be dealing with a religiously themed topic. In fact, I hope I let my guard down a little bit and pull out a piece of fiction that's also a sermon and really kind of tell a few things like they are. I may even get quite animated about it. But I didn't want to make you think that every week was going to be like this. We have a, a Palm Sunday episode today, an Easter episode next week. The focus will switch squarely to politics in the two weeks after that. I promise.